Good morning. We are really glad to be with you guys here this morning. It's been, uh, it's been too long, and so uh, hopefully we'll remedy that and we'll see you guys uh, more often. As, uh, as we take a look at this morning's text, I want you guys to contemplate a question. What really animates you? Uh, when you think back on your life, um, when you contemplate your daily experiences and the feelings that you have, what causes you um, to get upset, to get passionate, to get indignant, maybe fired up? Thinking about through our emotional responses, uh, thinking through what causes us to be emotionally charged, I think can be um, powerfully calibrating. Reflecting on what makes um, us deeply, uh, what deeply elicits a response from us, teaches us something about ourselves. What we learn in, in reflecting on that is what we really care about, what really matters to us, right? If I, if I have something and somebody takes it from me, if I don't care about that thing as it's gone, it, it doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. But if I get angry, if I get upset by it, it teaches me that whatever that was is really, really, really important to me. And so as we walk through this scripture this morning, I want to have you set in your mind that question. What is it that elicits a deep response from me? I've always been intrigued by this morning's story because we get a taste of what Jesus gets fired up about. And we get a taste of what he doesn't get fired up about. And learning that, I think, is really important. One of the reasons why um, I love the fact that we're studying the Gospel of John is because the Gospel of John teaches us about the most important topic we could ever study. You know what that topic is? When I was, when I was, uh, when I was first starting out, I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor of a, um, a church in a, uh, um, in a very, very rich suburban area. And I had these kids who had all grown up in the church, so they knew all the answers. I, I, this is going to be hard for you to, understand, to believe, but sometimes we as pastors get irritated with the people we're pastoring. And this would happen with me with these kids. And so I would teach Sunday school class, and like they've, they've known it all, they, they, they've seen it all, and so I'd be up there teaching something. As I'd be up there teaching them something, they were all not listening. And it would just irritate the snot out of me, and and, and as, they, as they, they were talking and they were in the corner, whatever, you know, you'd always want to ask, the, you know, as a teacher, you want to ask, ask the guy who's not listening to the question to, to put him on the spot, right? So I remember one specific Sunday, I, I had this guy sitting in the corner and, and, and he wasn't listening, whatever. And so I like, I like gave him a question. I'm like, Johnny, what's the answer? And he looked up and he goes, Jesus? And what was frustrating was that was the answer. Because almost always we know that the answer to the question in church is what? So what's the most important topic we can study? Jesus. What I love about the Gospel of John is the whole point of the Gospel of John is to introduce us to Jesus. People who don't know Jesus, don't know what he's about, don't know what, who he was and what he came to do. John writes it to say, this is Jesus. And the reason why I really am passionate about the idea that we need to learn about Jesus is because the way Peter describes what I need in my life. Peter in 2 Peter 
chapter 1, writes and says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The declaration Peter makes here is that he's given us all we need for life and godliness. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? How many think all is a lot? And how many think life is pretty all-encompassing, right? So he's given us all we need for life and righteousness through what? The knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what we need for our lives, if we want to live for him, if we want a righteousness in ourselves through the work of Jesus Christ, is through knowing more about Jesus. And so this morning, as we step into this passage, what we're looking at is, what does it say about Jesus? What does it tell us about his priorities? What does it tell us about what he really cares about? What animated Jesus? What got him fired up? What did he care about? And what did he not care about? I really believe in the text this morning, that is beautifully revealed. The pastor of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now stop right there. I love this story because Jesus gets mad. I'm Italian and just a little bit Sicilian. And I was raised with a temper. Um, uh, going back years, Kevin can actually attest to this. When I used to play golf, and I played golf on a fairly regular basis, um, I usually came home at least with one club, either that I had to fish out of a pond or that I had snapped in two. Um, I get a little irritated with, with slow drivers. It's better if um, kids under the age of 18 aren't there to hear the things that I say. Um, and, I, and I might have been known to yell at inanimate objects on occasion, particularly things that come from Ikea. Um, so... When Jesus lets loose here, for me, I read it, and I feel like he's kind of releasing his inner Sicilian. You know what I mean? And so every time I've read this, I just so identify with it. Is that, is that just me? Is that like because I'm Italian? Does anybody else read this and go, it's really great to see Jesus get mad? And, and if you read this, it's a pretty fascinating, calculated eruption. It says here he found the money changer sitting there and making a whip of cords. So this is what he did. So Jesus walks in and he sees everybody doing the thing. And he just gets, I, I cannot believe they're doing this. And so he goes and gets a bunch of cords and he's sitting there making a whip. Right? And you know what's taking place as he's making the whip, right? That, 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 like, that, like, that like dialogue, you have that like, fake conversation. Oh, you think you're going to get away with this. You're not going to. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You just wait until I, right? And so Jesus is like so into this that he like, makes this whip and he goes into 
the temple, ready to explode on these people. Jesus Christ walks into this, and he is really upset. I said I always love this story because this is one of those moments where Jesus seems so human and so like me. But it's funny how when you really look at this, it isn't anything like me. And that's the the first important distinction about the character of Jesus that we discover in this story. Jesus gets upset, like I get upset. But Jesus gets upset not because of the things that I get upset about. When you study the story, you really get to see some hints to his frustration. A lot of times we can just look at this and we can say, oh, well, Jesus was upset because these guys were selling things and and he just didn't want people selling things and making a profit all to this. And that's really not what it was. It was very reasonable that you'd have sellers there selling things. You basically had people who were traveling from, from, from um, large distances quite often for the purpose of, of, of giving up sacrifices. And so they're not bringing with them their goats. They're not bringing with them their sheep. They're not bringing with them a bunch of pigeons. So they're looking for a place to buy something to make a sacrifice. Some people kind of look at it and they think, well, it's probably that they were, they were like overcharging them and it just wasn't right. And so we, so we just, we got to realize that in the church, it's not about making too much money. It's not about whatever else. Well, the reality is what was really upsetting Jesus was the fact that instead of being outside the temple, they began to move themselves into the courts of the temple itself to make the sale. And where they were setting themselves up was not all the way in, but it was right on the outer, outer ridges of the, of the temple where those who were Gentiles and were being, were, were being converted to Judaism would come and enter into worship God. It was their place of worship. It was meant to be a sacred place where God and his holiness was reflected upon and people were worshipped. So Jesus walks into this moment and he sees something very, very upsetting, something that just drives him. He sees that his God is not being honored. We know that this is the heart of Jesus Christ because of the passage that is, that, that, that is referenced here. If you remember, the last statement that we read uh, is, is how the disciples frame Christ's anger within this prophetic voice. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. John makes reference here to Psalm 69. It was written by by David. And in doing, he expresses that passage as a messianic, prophetic word. For it is for your sake, it says, that I have become born, I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The declaration of the psalmist here as it relates to Jesus Christ is that when they stand up and they defame the name of God, when they bring dishonor to the name of God, when, when, they, make, when, they, when they make that which is sacred profane, I'm offended by it and I stand up in defense of the holiness of God. This this story provides the impetus for what animates Jesus, the holiness of God. 
This wasn't about him. It was about the holiness, the sacredness, the glory of God. His heart and his mind was on God's glory. As Christians, we like to frame our anger as righteous anger. Um, we understand that the Bible teaches, right, that, that be angry but sin not. And so because for a lot of us, anger is very close at hand, it's important for us to kind of justify our anger and, and, and to make our anger holy. To be like, oh no, I know I'm angry, but I'm not sinning because my anger is righteous. But the truth is, almost always, it's selfish anger. It's rooted in, in a perceived slight, a, a, a felt mistreatment, a hurt feeling. Now, we like to say things like, well, I wasn't treated right, and because that's not right, that's why I'm angry. Being angry because you weren't treated right does not equal righteous anger. It's selfish anger. To understand that, contrast it to what Jesus had happened to him. Contrast it to the life and the ministry and all the years of Christ as he walked on, these, on this earth. This is the place that we point to where we see Jesus actually get angry, right? Get fired up, get animated, get frustrated. But how often throughout his life was he personally attacked? How often throughout his life was he mistreated? How often throughout his life did, did people say things about him that were untrue, that weren't fair? That would give Jesus every right to stand up in anger at people and be mad at them. How many of you think that Jesus deserved to be hung on that cross? As they drove the nails into his wrists and they put him on that cross and they hung him up and as he bled, there wasn't righteous anger even there. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The truth is, when I look at the anger that Jesus Christ exhibits here, it's really nothing like what the anger I usually show. I remember years ago when I was on staff at a church up in Minnesota and I had staff that was working on, under me. We, I had a guy come in and he was so upset. He was a pastor and he was so upset because somebody had disrespected him. The Bible says you should respect pastors, and so he was all upset about it. And I remember saying to him, are you, are you upset because they have violated the word of God and therefore their soul is at issue? Or are you upset because you think you deserve some level of respect and some level of treatment, and you feel disrespected? It's fascinating in our culture and our society how, how um, defending against people disrespecting you is considered something acceptable even. Like, oh, you did something to offend me, and so now I want to be traded from the Packers. <laughs> See, we look at this in our lives, and we say, somebody did something to disrespect me, and because it wasn't right, me getting anger is righteous. But that's not what Jesus does here. Christ is animated in the face of the defamation of God and is at peace in the face 
of attacks against himself. How well do we do that? And when, and when we struggle in it, it really boils down to, and that's why I said earlier, that asking yourself the question of what is it that animates me, what is it that makes me angry, is, is, is very self-calibrating. Because it lets me know what I live for. Do I live for my own pleasure? Do I live for my own respect? Do I live for myself? And when that's taken away from me, I get angry. Or do I simply live for the glory of God? And that's what my concern is. As I say, I love this passage because it it allows me to understand what Jesus Christ really cared about. And it also shows me what he didn't really care about. Because there is this, this is another, there's another side to, it, it, to this that is found in this passage. And it really kind of helps complete the picture of what we're talking about. It really helps us to understand the difference between what should animate us and too often what does animate us. Now, think about what took place here. So, after, after this event in the, ta- in the temple, after... Um, after they ask him about a sign and, and after he, he alludes this idea that he'll tear down the temple and he'll rebuild it in three days, um, he goes out from the temple and John re- records what takes place. After all this interaction at the temple, it says he goes forth and he starts to do ministry. And this is what he says was a result of the ministry he does. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his na- name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, I want you to, I want you to listen to this because that passage I just read right there is one of those passages that we as Christians can easily just kind of read over and, and not really try and grasp what they're trying to get us to understand. And I really believe that there's an important idea that is buried in there that you've got to grab. Jesus goes into the temple. He stands up and he says, what is happening here is wrong. And he is animated and he is upset. And he stands up for the righteousness of God. His eyes are focused in on the glory of God, the holiness of God, the sacredness of God. And then he goes from this place and he starts doing signs. And as he does these signs, it says, many believed in his name. So what are we we describing here? We're describing Jesus being upset by what took place in the temple. Then he goes from that place and goes about his ministry, goes about what he's doing. And he goes out and he starts showing God to people. Maybe people are being healed. Maybe he's speaking words of wisdom and knowledge. Maybe, Maybe he's doing things that... That, are, that people know are beyond them and that, are, that, are, that a prophet is here. And so they begin to believe in Jesus. He gathers a crowd. He gets people on his side. He gets people believing in him. He's like a successful preacher right now. He's gathered people to him and they're, they're believing in him and believing in his ministry. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? What are they telling us? 
There is such a, a fascinating and important mindset that Christ exhibits. One that, that helps to bring peace to his heart and to his mind. One that empowers him to forego unrighteous anger. Jesus Christ had a bunch of people who started believing in him. But he never, ever, ever put his faith in them. Never, ever looked at them as being what he could count on. A lot of people read this passage, and I think a lot of people translate this or interpret this passage wrongly. The passage here says that, that Jesus did these signs and people believed in him, but Jesus, knowing the heart of man, didn't entrust himself to them. A lot of people read this and they say, oh, well, what they're trying to say there is, is that these people believed in him but didn't really believe in him. They just liked the signs he did, and so Jesus really understood that, that they weren't really Christians, and so we've got to make sure that we're really Christians. Now, I have a problem with that interpretation, first and foremost, because nothing in here does it say any caveat on they believed in him. It just simply says they believed in him, right? Second of all, when, you, when they talk about here what Jesus', Jesus response to that is, he said he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men. And then as you keep going, going down, you read what's next, he himself knew what was in man. So the idea here is, the declaration here is, God is dealing with the state of man. He understood the heart of man. He understood who, who, what, man what, what was going on, what their motivation was what was true and what was right in the heart of man. To understand this a little bit better, I, I want to read to you what the Amplified says. But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and understood the superficiality and fickleness of human nature. And he did not need anyone to testify concerning man and human nature, for he himself knew what was in man. This isn't about they believed in Jesus for the wrong reasons, so Jesus didn't care or was indifferent or whatever you want to say. It says he didn't entrust himself to them. They believed in him, but he wasn't counting on them. They believed in him, but he didn't rest in, in, in their accolades. Simply put, they believed in him but he didn't believe in them. This is what I call the spiritual gift of lowered expectations. Jesus for, him, for, his, Jesus, for his part, didn't concern himself with the accolades of the crowd. He didn't concern himself with the praise of followers. He didn't concern himself with the acceptance of his community. He understood that it was, it was fickle, that it was imperfect. That if he chose to rely upon these other people, they would fail him. And yet, he was still fully devoted to the mission of glorifying God in every single interaction he had with these fickle people. His eyes were off man's fickle praise and they were on God's constant glory. 
This is such an important lesson for us to learn if we're actually going to serve Jesus. If we're actually going to serve Jesus the way he calls us to serve Jesus, if we're actually going to serve Jesus as we engage in ministry, we engage in relationships, whether it's a relationship between a husband and wife or a neighbor or a coworker or a brother and sister in Christ in the church. The gap between our expectations for, our, for people and the reality of who people are is where frustration lives. I, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a concept, there's an idea that's out there that everybody kind of teaches that, that I think is actually wrong. And it's the idea that we should think the best of everyone. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Like, you came to church, and the past, you're here for being courage, and the pastor's coming to you, and it's like, hey, whatever you do, don't think the best of everyone. Think everyone's terrible. But here's the key to that. It's kind of true. When we believe that people are always going to do the thing that we think is right, that we think they should be doing, what we do is we set ourselves up to see failure in them, and then we are disappointed and we are broken. But the truth is, the Bible teaches us people are broken. When we have an expectation for our husbands, we have an expectation for our wives, we have an expectation for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the community of the church that they will always do exactly what we want them to do. When they don't do it, we end up getting hurt, and what we do is we end up pushing people away. Let me share, let me share it with you from my personal experience, from what it's like to be a pastor. For the last 27 years, I've pastored people. And I can say without contradiction, without even exaggeration, that I have had hundreds, maybe thousands, but I can say confidently hundreds of people in my life that I have loved, that I have drawn near to me, that I have given my time to, that I have invested in, that I brought into my home, that I have fed, that I've had live with us, that we have given ourselves to as they are family as my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Because the word of God taught me from the very beginning, as a kid growing up, I was taught that this is my family. That these are my brothers, that these are my sisters. And that I will do anything for them and I will invest in them and I will care for them. And I can tell you without contradiction that I have hundreds of people who have walked away from me. Who have said terrible things about me that were not true. That have stabbed me in the back over and over and over again. And I don't say that as some type of like, oh, poor Tommy. That has nothing to do with this. It has to do with the reality of what it is to interact with people. Because people are broken. Now, you have one or two responses to that experience. The one response is, when that happens, realize that unless I protect myself, I'm going to be hurt. And so... You might accept it for the first time, maybe the second time, maybe the third time. But eventually you convince yourself of this idea that, that fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, and you begin to push people away and you put up walls, and as a pastor, you minister from a distance. This happens all the time. There are lots of pastors, I can tell you uh, what I've been trained in, what people have told, you, told me. You got to have some distance from, from your people because otherwise you're always going to be hurt and you're always going to be struggling. 
So you can build up, build up walls. You can put distance between you and the people that you're supposed to be ministering to. That's your one option. The other option is to step in realizing that every single relationship you have can hurt you. But that your heart and your mind are not set on the approval of men, on the acceptance of men, on the love of men, but your heart and your mind are set on the glory of God. That I am called to love my brothers and sisters, not because of how great they are, but in spite of how broken they are. Really, because of how broken they are. The standard that Jesus Christ set for us as we watch this is that he, as this says, he understood. He understood the fickleness of men. He understood what was going to take place in his life. He understood how they were going to praise him one day and cry for him to be crucified another day. But Jesus didn't create distance between him and anyone, including Judas. But drew him near because he knew that the reason and the purpose of his existence is to glorify God, to love others unconditionally. Listen, the reality is you will, have, you will have broken relationships if you don't understand this idea between a husband and a wife, between sons and daughters, between brothers and sisters in Christ in the community of the church. Listen, I guarantee you, if you've been in the church more than 15 minutes, you've been hurt by somebody. And the problem we have in the church community, the problem we have in the American church is when we get hurt by people, we start distancing ourselves from them. And we start engaging in community, engaging in the church at an arm's length because we don't want to keep getting hurt because a bunch of those people are jerks. And they're mean. And they say and they do things that really, really hurt me. And so I want to hold these people at arm's length. I want distance between them. So what we do is we engage in the church on a certain level and no, no further beyond that. I'll come to church. I will come to church three times a month. And I'll even come and let some guy tell me something and yell at me for a few minutes. But I am not going to engage with people because I've been too hurt before. If that is your heart, if that is your posture, I want you to know something. You have your eyes and your hope in man and not on the glory of God. He is the one who gives me hope. He is the one who gives me love. He is the one who gives me comfort. He is the one who gives me joy. He is the one who brings peace into my heart and into my life, not anyone else. Now, what's beautiful about the gift that we've been given as the community of Christ, what's beautiful about the gift of the family is that we are, we, we allow, we are allowed to taste glimpses of what love is. We are allowed to taste glimpses of what comfort is. But the totality of love and comfort and peace and joy is only found when our eyes are on Jesus Christ. What allowed Jesus to act in grace and mercy when broken people behaved in broken ways was because he knew all people and understood the superficiality and fickleness of human nature. He knew what was in men, but he wanted to bring glory to God because that was his mission, that was his purpose, and he knew that the brokenness of men was creating in the crowd whether the crowd was there to praise him 
or the crowd was there to crucify him. A sin that required mercy and grace to overcome. You understand that's our mission too. That the brokenness in your husband, the brokenness in your wife, the brokenness in your children, the brokenness in your neighbor, the brokenness in your coworker, the brokenness in your family at church requires your grace and your mercy to overcome. Not your anger, not your disgust, not your indifference, but grace. Let me revisit the initial question. What animates you? What gets you upset, passionate, indignant, fired up? Is it slights against you? Is it unfair treatment at the hands of others? Is it personal sensibilities offended? Or is it centered on the glory of God being upheld. We live for his name and not our fame. We live so that he is magnified, not so that we are glorified. Jesus Christ did not entrust himself to the crowd, and neither should we. He entrusted himself only to his heavenly Father, and that is our calling too. He is our hope, he is our joy, he is our love, he is our comfort. When others will fail us, he never will. Dear Lord, I pray for each heart that's here this morning. Each heart that has been touched by you, that has been awakened by you, that has been shown true love by you, I pray, Father, that those hearts would find strength in you. Father, I pray for each person that's here this morning that even as I speak this out, they can, they can identify, they can pinpoint brokenness in relationship and the, the pain and the hurt that has come as a result of that brokenness and that pain. Father, I pray that they would move their eyes of the brokenness of others and raise them to the totality that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Bring healing from our hurts. Free us, Father, to, to step out into the breach. Give us the strength to face times when we know that we may be hurt. But that it won't matter because we want to bring mercy and we want to bring grace for the glory and the beauty of our Heavenly Father. Would you stand with us?